Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. On the line with me now is Brian Rogoff. Brian is the CEO of Otolo Education. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you on. You've been an, an, an expert in the field of education uh, for many years now. And what are some of the main changes that we've seen? Obviously, the online education movement has changed quite a lot. But in the last three, four months, uh, what what sea change have we seen? It's a great question. And look at the, I think you could start with K-12 schools, right? If you look at, at uh, just that as a starting point, uh, most parents have now turned into teachers. Uh, some of us uh, are better than others, but you know, <laughs> the, the parents uh, has taken on most of that responsibility. And that's been a, a change, you, you know, I guess related to that is you've had schools and parents and students that have had to rapidly adapt to uh, re- remote learning. And that's been a very big challenge for, for all of those stakeholders. You know, it, same thing with universities. If you look at universities, most universities were not prepared, particularly in the United States, but even in places like Australia and the UK, for remote learning. Uh, and then let's call the, the students repatriating uh, to some of their home countries. It's been a really big challenge. So I, I would say the general shift to online learning has been a struggle for most. At the same time, you've seen some really interesting uh, approaches come out. If you look at some of the uh, tutoring uh, platforms that are now out there, online tutoring, they've had remarkable uptake with, with parents having to sort of make up for what's not being delivered, whether that's to their younger children or even for universities. They'll be able to, to develop and, and implement really innovative business models around remote uh, tutoring. So it, it's uh, it's. Some of these things, I think, are, are for sure here to stay, uh, and some are, will possibly, you know, minimize as we go forward. But some very interesting things coming out of, uh, out of COVID when it comes to learning. Of course, you know, we've had for years now, we've had Khan Academy and, and Lynda.com and, you know, other online porters through the, many of the universities across the world, right, that have, that have had online learning. Are, are you surprised in what we've seen in recent months about the, maybe the lack of smoothness of a transition from uh, in-school learning to online learning? Um, I have, you know, just... Uh, talking to friends, parents, um, many of us have been kind of surprised that schools were not better at making this transition to an online learning environment. You know, I guess sadly, I guess having, having run schools for a long time, it's surprising. And I think particularly uh, for, for the younger children, I think there are some schools that had already some form of digital learning for students, but typically in, in middle or high school or secondary school, mm-hmm. where, you know, students could sort of have some, you know, self-directed learning. But really, most schools are, are not geared up for that. And it's why even if today, I mean, I, I'm not sure of some of the other parents' experience, but particularly for the younger children, it's basically um, become a teacher you know, generally on a Zoom call or, or otherwise or Google Meets call. And it's really more of social interaction. There's really not much learning. And part of that is it's very difficult in such a very short period of time to rapidly adjust the whole curriculum and, and pedagogy of teaching to an online model. And it's why most people have really struggled and ultimately why, sadly, most of us as, as parents have, have been uh, primarily educating our children for the last several months. Yeah. And now that we've been into it for several months, I mean, there definitely have been uh, positive gains, positive advances by many teachers, many schools uh, to, to make this a better experience uh, from the user's point of view, right, from the student's point of view. Um, what do you think have been the key lessons as you look at putting this, as you say, putting this ped- pedagogy online and, and the way that they are doing it? What, what have been some of the positive lessons they've learned on how to do it right? 
Well, look, I, I give all the schools a lot of credit because, I mean, they, they've been drinking from a fire hose with this and trying to support learning, uh, which is new for everyone, uh, online. So I, I think a, the, the real positives that have come of this is that most schools, I would say now, are building this in as part of their strategic plans going forward. You know, they, they, they are work, now working under an assumption that whether it's now or some point in the future, there may be periodic uh, shutdowns um, where, you know, delivering quality learning going forward is going to be mandatory. And I guess the other interesting thing that has come out of this is that there is a level of now ability to personalize the learning during your students more when you're able to have some form of home-based learning. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if what we see going forward is a little bit of a blended model where, you know, you have your brick-and-mortar schools like we do, but there is a lot of uh, remote learning that, that adds value to that journey uh, where, where you're given more, more opportunity. Yeah, of course, a lot of the universities and, well, many schools across the world have had their graduations now virtually uh, because they couldn't get back to campus at this time of year. Um, and, and when we think about that, the, the traditional notion of value for money, right, we, we think, hey, we got the school, we got the uh, physical facilities there that can be used in a variety of ways. And a lot of people pay a fair amount of money to, to take you know, to take part of the, in that. Now with our virtual learning environment and whatever way it goes forward, um, does, the, does the economic model have to be rethought uh, in terms of what you can charge people if they're not going to be physically present? You bet. And, and I would say this is being uh, d- debated by boards of trustees, board of directors, and board of governors at, at uh, universities and, and schools all over the world right now. Mm. And, and I would say the universities themselves are probably the ones who, who this is going to be a, a real stark reality uh, come the fall for you know, the enrollment season for the Northern Hemisphere universities. This is, a, this is a, potentially a survival issue for many schools. Yeah. The, um, the idea of ed tech, education technology, uh, being part of the journey now, uh, first of all, explain to our listeners what that, that involves, what it uh, encompasses. But secondly, how is that how is that being driven into the process or baked into the process? Well, you know, ed tech is a, is a fairly wide term, right? And it's used to cover a lot of different models. I would say where, where it's getting a lot of prominence, particularly, you know, in light of COVID is, you know, bringing some level of, you know, digital experience to either the student or the parent. And I, I would say the, the areas that are really taking off at the moment are, you know, areas that focus around tutoring. I mean, if you look at, various subject tutoring, whether it's, you know, tutoring in, in national curriculum subjects in Singapore or math or language or other sort of, you know, key subject areas, that is, a, it's just an explosion uh, online uh, and a lot of different companies sort of trying to figure out a way to have either one-to-one tutoring online, you know, there's some really interesting companies doing, doing work around that. The other thing, though, from a university perspective, and, and online you know, learning, whether it's asynchronous or synchronous, uh, is not new to universities. They have uh, p- partners called OPMs, online uh, program managers. There's companies, you know, big companies that use and noodle partners of the world who are, are their entire business model is, is around delivering those companies around delivering university uh, experience online. Um, that will go back to the other point of, of you know, some of these uh, educational technology models will disrupt uh, some of the more traditional brick-and-mortar models and potentially lower the overall cost of education for parents and students, which is frankly a good thing. Yeah, do you see a difference in the way that the online learning model might be implemented in this part of the world, in Asia, versus what might happen in North America or Europe? Is Are there different needs or different 
styles of, of education that might warrant a slightly different approach if online learning continues? You know, I, I guess it's a bit of a mixed answer. And the reason I say that is that one of the, I guess, opportunities with online learning, and I think particularly when it comes to the universities, is that ultimately it, it provides far more access on a global basis. So I, I think when you get into certain regions or even certain countries, there's going to have to be some nuance, whether it's, it's some, you know, cultural things that may need to be adjusted in, the, in the, the way that things are taught. But I do think that what you will see is, is access more broad. You know, so as an example today, you have, you know, several million students that travel to the United States every year to study at universities in the United States. And that's probably going to be very challenging in the near term. Right. And it is, you know, ca- causing a, a lot of folks to sort of recognize and say, well, you know, wow, if my son or daughter can stay here locally in Asia, get the quality of education that, that they can get online. Yes, they lose, they lose a, a big part of the, you know, the, the, the fun part of the university experience, which ultimately we could get into a debate as what are you really pay, paying for uh, in that tuition and room and board. Yeah. But you still get that, that same quality of curriculum delivered. But it, obviously the experience of learning is very, very different. But yeah. you, get, you have that access. Mm, we're speaking with Brian Rogov, CEO of Atala Education. And Brian, you have some interesting stats that I've heard you talk about before on the lifetime value of earnings uh, when we think about university. And of course, uh, in Asia, lots of uh, parents, very concerned tiger parents, uh, want their kids to go to, uh, you know, to Ivy League schools or schools that are really at the top, uh, perceiving that that is going to be a more valuable degree to have at the end of the day. Tell us a little bit more about what you have found uh, with that value of education. It's a, look, it's a really interesting point. I, I think, particularly in this part of the world, I think if you talk to most parents, I think everyone would say, look, I want my son or daughter to go to, you know, one of the, the, the top universities. That could be whether that's, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or University of Chicago or any, any of the, these top-ranked universities. And the reality of it is when you actually look at the data, and ultimately you have to ask yourself the question of what am I, what am I paying for? You know, whether it's the student paying, taking out loans, their parents paying for it, what is the value of a degree? Now, the good news is that the value of, of having a, at least an undergraduate degree relative to no degree at all is very significant around, very significant difference for someone's lifetime value of earnings, the, the amount of money that they're able to make over the course of their career. Meaning, ha- meaning because, having a degree is necessary to raise that amount. And, and if you look at some statistics on that, let, mm-hmm. let's, let's say that, that on average, you know, having an undergraduate degree on average w- would allow you to make about two and a half million dollars more over the course of your entire life than not having a- an undergraduate degree. So that's pretty significant, you know, mm-hmm. when you think about that over the course of life. Now, here's where it's really interesting, right? So that's, that's general. That doesn't matter what university you go to w- within reason. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing is when you actually get below, let's call it the top 25 or top 50 ranked universities, but really the top 25, or even if you were in a more extreme and say, after you get past you know, the top 100 universities. And let's take the United States, for example, where there's over 3,000 universities, not including community colleges. So I'm talking, you know, very small, very elite, highly selective universities, okay? If you actually go below that to, to, the, to the other, let's say, 3,100, and you actually look at the relative difference in lifetime value of earnings from going to a top university to going to a university at all, over the course of your lifetime, there's not much of a difference. It's about $500,000 Okay, different over the course of a lifetime. Now, you can get more granular than here's the interesting thing, Glenn, when you, you get into like what you're paying for. So if that's the case and you're still going to do quite well over the lifetime value, ultimately, what are you paying for? If you're a student and you have to take out, let's say, $400,000 in debt yeah. to, to pay for you know, a very elite university, 
are you really going to you know get that or can you you know find a, a very good quality university maybe it's not in the top 25 maybe it's not even in the top 100 that's you know, maybe it's a state school. Maybe it's $10,000 a year. Maybe your entire cost of education is $25,000, $50,000. Relative to what your lifetime value of earnings are, it's a fantastic return on investment. But I think particularly in this part of the world, a lot of people, uh, I would say myself included, of course, Tiger Parent, you know, we, we all want the best for our children. But the sure. reality is if you look at the data, your children will still be set up very well to, to, to garner a lot of lifetime value of earnings even if they don't go to a top 25, top 100 university. Interesting. Speaking with Brian Rogov. And, and Brian, to carry on from that point, then, then what is the factor that, and I know this is, could be a very big discussion, but you know, if, if it's not the university that you go to, where is the success factor lie? Is it in the individual's drive to succeed? Is it, you know, is it more of a, uh, an individual um, metric that, that makes people successful if it's not the place they went to study? You know, it's interesting, and, and I would say, that, and this is a broad discussion, I, I, I think it goes into, you know, what, what are the skills that you need to prepare yourself for, you know, the jobs of tomorrow, right? You know, mm-hmm. Everyone talks about the fourth industrial revolution. It's not just the academic skills. You know, you, you have to have, you know, whether you call them the soft skills, the qualitative skills, critical thinking, you know, having adaptability, and think, think about where we are in, in the post-COVID world of, you know, what have we had to do? We have had to, everyone's got to have some grit. They, they have to be very adaptive to change. These, these sort of skills for students today are just as critical as knowing math and, and, and learning, you know, engineering courses and technical courses. Having that balance going forward of, of those soft skills. I mean, think of how, you know, you a lot of people in your program, think of all the leaders that you've spoken with over the years around, you know, what are the skills that they have to be managers? Much of them, you know, they weren't all, you know, straight A students and you know, all engineering degrees. A lot of it is having those soft skills, the ability to talk to people. That's going to be really, really important. And I guess that kind of goes into, you know, what is the thing you get out of a university experience, you know, which people are trying to reconcile now. Yeah. It is that social experience. It's the networks that you build with people. It's those social interactions that drive those soft skills that you mm-hmm. learn in addition to the, the curriculum that you study. Yeah, very interesting, and and let's let's finish up, Brian. You you currently serve on the board of uh, of Reach Higher, uh, which is a nonprofit uh, focused on equity and access to uh, post secondary education for people, first generation students, uh, maybe whose parents or grandparents didn't have a chance to go to college. Now, interestingly, that that board is chaired by uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama. And what is what is the work of that board? What urgency does it take? especially when we look in this past few past couple of weeks of, of now the, the George Floyd case and this global resurgence and awakening of, of looking at equality toward uh, people of color and, and different economic status, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah, look, it's a fantastic board to be part of, you know, for all the obvious reasons you would think. And I would say in today's time with everything going on and even just starting with COVID and, of course, the recent um, with George Floyd, it is about equity and access. And there's some interesting things that have come up and been discussed quite frequently lately. One, of course, is on, on I'm sure maybe you've heard, but, you know, the University of California system essentially just eliminated was in the process of eliminating standardized tests, which is significant because the way that the University of California system goes, generally so does the rest of the system. And interesting thing is there's quite a debate around, you know, do those tests have racial bias, uh, socioeconomic bias? The University of California has decided that they, that they do. 
in theory, that should uh, be a positive for, you know, more access uh, that's not just, uh, you know, around kids that have, uh, you know, if you will, the ability to pay for tutoring and pay for test prep. This should theoretically start to provide that a, a little bit more. The, the other interesting point, I guess, is that what we're finding, and, and it's horrific that it had to come through, you know, uh, this, this tragic incident with, with George Floyd, is the discussion is now far uh, greater than it was around how do we proactively provide that access. By the way, it, it's, it's for, you know, it's access to not just, you know, students who, this is the, the first uh, generation students to go to college, it's immigrants, non-native English speakers, all of whom there's some level of bias or discrimination in, in the selection process. And, you know, it, it's not just about going to these top universities. It's, it's, it's going back to that argument. Of how do we make sure, even if you go to a community college, it's, it's broadening that reach and broadening that access. And obviously the, the, the board and, and, and the organization today is quite U.S. focused, but, but it, it is, you know, looking at ways of how do we bring this dialogue, you know, uh, more broadly to, to other parts of, of, of the country and the world, because, Again, it comes back to the fundamental argument of you need to be able to offer as much uh, long-term education opportunities as you can to, for students yep. because of their ability to, to make a good you know, living for themselves going, going forward. Thank you. Uh, Brian Rogov, CEO, Atala Education. Really great to speak with you, and thanks for giving us some uh, different perspective on our educational environment post-COVID-19. My pleasure, Glenn. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.